0: Good morning. Um, I hope that we are ready to receive. As we continue in the series, The Callings, today we're going to be discussing, we're unpacking one calling that Paul listed in Ephesians 4.11 per week so we can get a biblical framework for what he was actually talking about. And how many of you know that words build the world? Right? And how many of you also know that certain words can carry baggage with them? Right? How many of you, like, just because of our experience with a certain word can leave a bitter taste in our mouth, right? Apostle is one of those words, and that's where we're going to begin today. And so I want to just let you know, like if you're here and you go, um, yeah, it has left a bitter taste in my mouth. It doesn't matter if you come from more of the charismatic end of our spectrum or the more Calvinistic end of our evangelical spectrum. There has been a bad taste left in our mouth, and I'm one that just has a tendency to like to... Um, poke fun at that. You know, I like to go ahead and kick right through and break the ice of tension if we can, when we use certain words like that. So today I found this uh, funny article. It is satirical. So can I say that in advance? It's okay. It's all right. Don't shoot the messenger, but I just want to look at a little bit of, of if how we've been made to feel by certain interpretations of this word that the Lord gave us. And so Um, We're going to begin with this. Uh, This article comes from Miami, Florida. It says, as the long summer stretch gets underway, local prophet, evangelist, apostle, healer, David Baker's accurate prophecy average, his APA, is hovering right around 300, edging out all other prophesiers to take the lead spot within the charismatic movement. Going into Sunday's prayer and healing service, Baker was sitting at a respectable 292 average. But he had a strong showing at that service to overtake the other two apostle healers to take the number one spot. According to several attendants, Baker stepped up to the microphone and prophesied boldly that a local woman was having some kind of trouble in her life. Which turned out to be true. Setting the tone for an impressive showing. But trouble brewed in the second hour of that meeting as Baker got up to prophesy that Jesus would return before he finished his next sentence. That was immediately proven wrong. I got a little too excited. I swung for the fences, Baker said in a post-service interview. Once in a while, you just want to let one rip, you know. Still, Baker redeemed himself with a walk-off prophecy claiming that someone in the congregation was struggling with finances which prompted everyone in attendance to weep over the stunning accuracy of that claim. <laughs> if Baker continues his hot streak, he may overtake modern Pentecostalism's heavy hitters to set the record for the best APA in a single season, which currently sits at 329, an incredibly accurate uh, accuracy rate for prophecy, one in three. This is obviously a parody. It's funny because it reveals some of the baggage that certain words carry with them, that bitter taste that we have, have a tendency to hear because we've, we've had exposure to things or misinterpretation to things. These words that we're using in this series through Ephesians 4.11, the words that Paul used, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, some of them carry some of that baggage. During the series, we want to unpack these words. Today, we unpack the word apostle because we want to give clarity to what we're talking about in clarity, to what we're not talking about when we reference apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd or pastor and teacher. See, we're simply examining the callings that Paul listed in Ephesians 4 when he used the word to describe the ministries or the functions of the church. We're not talking about a second office to aspire to or elevate to. We're also not talking about some kind of special anointing that's found on people, not some secret anointing that we all can't have. We're also not talking about an occupation. This is not a conversation. I want you to listen clearly. This is not a conversation about spiritual gifts either, though that has been widely accepted and these have been lumped in with that. What we are saying, let me put it this way, Occupation or vocation, let's put it over here on the right, can be viewed as ministry assignment, okay? I want to give some clarity. That's not what we're talking about, ministry assignment. Spiritual gifts, let's put that over here. They should be used to describe equipping, that the Lord gives us his spirit, that we bear fruit of it, and he gave us spiritual gifts that we might complete our call, that it would equip our call. That we could complete our assignment. But gifting is equipping. Occupation is assignment. What we are talking about in this passage. That Paul uses the word calling. Is simply personal design. Most importantly. I mentioned this last week. You're going to look at yourself. Through the lens of someone who might be apostolic. Or prophetic. Or evangelistic. Or shepherding. Or teaching. Having that calling or, or shape. We need to. Um, First and foremost, see ourselves the way that God saw us. It's the beginning and the end. We are His beloved children. We are child of God. That's the most important title you and I can have. And if we never through this eight-week series discover our call, let me just tell you, it is okay. We're discovering. We're discussing. Please allow yourself to wrestle with it. That is part of our faith. Don't allow it to frustrate you to the point where you want to stop. But see, as you continue to run the race of faith, cultivate a relationship with Him, spend time in the Word of God, in your life group as we discuss these things, and together with us here on Sunday, you will discover, and our prayer is that it'll be, your eyes will be open to the unique calling that God has given you and the contribution you most naturally give to the church because of the way He made you. First, 1 Corinthians 26, 31, Paul wrote it like this. And I'm just going to give a paraphrase, kind of a synopsis of what he's saying in those five verses. Here it is, one sentence. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. He has always been about equipping the called. So uh, let's read Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, if you will, with me. And he himself, Jesus himself, Gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of god 's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by christ 's fullness. then will we no longer be children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit, but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in. Every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him, the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love for the proper working of every individual part. The reason we say this is about function or ministry or design is because that's what Paul says right here. And we need to make a distinction immediately. Between two words in the New Testament that are often inter- used interchangeably that are wrong. And it's led to some of the baggage I was talking about a moment ago. We're going to get a distinction and a description of the word Apostle in Scripture. The word Apostle or Apostolos means one sent on mission. And during the Apostolic Age and the birth of the New Testament church, there were 12. Including Matthias who replaced Judas. That had been trained by Jesus as disciples and apprenticed under him during his ministry. They would be called apostles once their ministry began in Jesus' name. In Acts 9, we see a thirteenth a added to the enlistment of those twelve. You have thirteen. His name was Saul of Tarsus, or who would become Paul. Paul would be and have a specific call to the Gentiles. He would write much of the New Testament... And he wrote the very passages that we're studying through this series. These men specifically played a fundamental role in the birth of the church and the eternal role in the kingdom. This was their God-given function. And it was set apart during a specific age. They were marking principles of the apostles. This is what helps us know they were set for this specific age and the birth of the church. During the apostolic age... And these men and what they did for us needs to be protected in church history. These are those marking principles. I'm going to tell you why we need to protect it and set them apart in church history. Number one, they were selected directly by Jesus himself as apostles. They were set apart by him themselves. Number two, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. They saw him before he seemed to be with the Father with their naked eye. Three... They performed miracles and signs and wonders in the name of Jesus that authenticated their message. These men and their contribution to the world needs to be respected and remembered with reverence because they've paved the New Testament in their blood. They were martyrs for the sake of you and I having the freedom today to worship. And they gave us these letters. These were their title. The apostles of Jesus Christ, and we need to remember them as such. They were specific men in history for a specific time. So if you've ever heard that, you're right. We're gonna put them aside because when we speak of apostle, we do so using a lowercase a. They're the uppercase A, the thirteen. The lowercase A is agreeing with another word used in the New Testament for apostle. That word is apostoloi. It means messenger of the church, used more widely in a general sense for other men. We see this word used in Philippians 2.25 with Epaphroditus. We see it used in 2 Corinthians 8.23 when we see it used with Titus. It is translated messenger, but in the original language, it is the same word as apostle, Apostoloi. We see this word used with Barnabas in fourteen fourteen, uh, uh, sorry Acts fourteen fourteen, not the year. In Acts fourteen fourteen, Barnabas is using this word or uses word to describe him. Barnabas was not an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus. This would distance him from the other thirteen apostles of Jesus Christ. There's a distinction to be found here. But he still functioned as one in a broader sense. As he did, it didn't possess all the marking principles that one of them had, he ministered alongside them and with them. He accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys to the Gentiles for a time and was crucial in rallying men and women to the gospel and helping establish churches during the first century by training and employing in the gospel and in the function of gospel community or the church. In this description, we seek to further expound on the calling of apostle listed in Ephesians 4. These were missionaries, church planners, today still are, as well as entrepreneurs, ambassadors, consultants, if you will, to help us engage and accomplish tasks in the vision before us. They love helping others understand and live out their calling. They are catalysts and love getting things started. They love thinking about the new. They always do it. They love thinking about the big picture and always keep that in mind. They are always thinking about ways to grow and expand. They send and they are sent to carry the gospel to even the riskiest places that the gospel can go on the planet. They have the heart of C.T. Studd, who said it like this. Some want to live within the sound of the church and chapel bells, but I want to run a rescue mission within a yard of hell itself. Hear me? That person. Today we want to talk about their function, and as we do talk about their function, I want to use a picture. See, we have a lot of letters in the New Testament that come back and explain to us what in the encouragement of the, how they kept continuing the church to go. But they, we don't see a, a great picture of the church being birthed. However, we do see a picture of an apostle in the Old Testament who took a God-given vision and brought it to fruition by engaging and rallying everyone else around him to function as he had fit to see that vision come to completion. His name was Nehemiah. So from Nehemiah 1 and 2, I'm going to bring a couple of verses. It says, During the month of Chislev in the 20th year, When I was in the fortress city of Susa of Persia, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with the men from Judah and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates had been burned. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept. I mourned for a number of days fasting and praying before the God of heavens. Before I go any further, I want to explain where we are in time and what's happening. When he says in the 20th year, this is around the year 444 B.C., um, b- between 444 and 445 B.C., so you're talking around 140, 142 years after Babylonian captivity. And when he says a number of days I sat down and I prayed, four months of fasting and praying Burdened with what he has hurt about the remnant and what has happened to his city in Jerusalem. Verse 10. It says that immediately Nehemiah began to pray. I just want to point out a couple things that he prayed to the God of heavens. After he confessed his sin and confessed the sin of the people. He said, they are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man, or the king. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. Chapter 2. During the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Four months have passed between the time he heard to this picture we see right here. I had never, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the the king said to me, "Why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart." I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, "May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city of my ancestors are?" Uh, where my si- The city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, the city where my ancestors are buried, and that I may b- rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. Now, I'll tell you in advance, what's going to happen is they're going to complete the wall in 52 days, okay? They're going to complete the rebuilding of the wall in 52 days. But God burdened Zehemiah with a vision. It was a vision to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so... The people, the remnant, would no longer be susceptible to surrounding enemies. So Nehemiah was told by someone else about the problem at hand. And God took that and burdened him with a deep vision. Like burdened him with it. Like he felt it in his bones and he was like, something has to be done. Anyone ever felt like this before? He said, "I I have to see an answer. I have to be a part of this answer. Now, it's been 140 some odd years this problem has existed. The gates have been down for that period of time. This is not new. But how many of you have ever found yourself and uh, a little bit like embarrassed but glad you know when you become aware of a problem that's existed for a long time but it just really hit your doorstep? How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you recognize like Haiti's been the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere for a while but some of us have just kind of had our eyes open to that? You know what I'm talking about? And so you, you feel that. This is Nehemiah. He feels the weight of that and because God burdened him with it. But he's an entrepreneur. He's going... It's been down for 140 some odd years. No one else got the thought to do it, right? So he's going to do what no one else has done yet. Nehemiah is deeply distressed about the state of Jerusalem's walls and carried and mourned over it for... For months, for many days, it says. Here's the thing: when you're burdened for um, something, it begins to show to your community. It begins to show to those who are around you. His burden became so obvious that King Artaxerxes could not help but speak to it. Why are you so sad when you are not yourself sick, Nehemiah? knew this was his opportunity he had prayed for opportunity and favor with this man and he'd been praying not like one day and expected the next he'd been praying for months and then finally when it presents itself he shares his heart Nehemiah could not contain his heartbreak internally any longer and it was showing physically here's the thing that's amazing I believe that God had so burdened with him with this that God was actually revealing his burden for the people through Nehemiah. This wasn't even his original burden. It was God's. He heard it from someone else and it was not a new problem, but it broke Nehemiah's heart. How many of us have ever prayed, "God, break your heart for the things, break my heart for the things that break yours." Nehemiah is broken for the thing that is breaking God's heart right now. Now, all of us should be praying that regardless of whether we have an apostolic calling in our life or not. Can you imagine the effect the church would have in its local surroundings and abroad if we all simply got up daily and said, God, break my heart for what breaks yours? Just me? Okay. Okay. Artaxerxes asks and gives permission and blessing, and this should not be understated. This favor had been asked for by Nehemiah in prayer. It didn't come from from just like on a whim. It didn't just come from the kindness of Artaxerxes. It came because Nehemiah had earned the right to ask this question. Nehemiah had gained his trust. See, Nehemiah was cupbearer to the king that sign off is important here's why because what that means is that every day at every meal Nehemiah comes to the table which is a highly honored position it's trusted it has the trust of the king but it was for a slave like like Nehemiah who by the way was free to go at this point but decided to stay. He liked his life in the palace and stayed there. I believe he stayed because God was doing this in his life, sovereignly. But he stays. In every meal, he takes his own life into his hands and he risks it. Why? Because he's a risk taker by nature. Apostles are. You see, for him to taste the wine or the food before the king can, just to ensure that the king can eat it so that some enemy did not slip in the back door and poison the the king, making his entire kingdom susceptible to overthrow, guess who takes that risk at every meal? Nehemiah. If you've seen that guy do that for you repeatedly, are you going to trust him? So he did. Our Dexerxes trust Nehemiah because he's a risk taker. He's someone who is willing to put it on the line. So even if Nehemiah wasn't this charismatic, big personality that we have in our minds of maybe uh, the prosperity gospel televangelist, okay? Like a, a poor picture. He wasn't that kind of leader that we often assume individuals who have an apostolic calling to be. We still see that God had placed in this person's life, this Nehemiah, this average guy, the heart of a risk taker in this call. Two, before he does anything, once he gets to Jerusalem, here's what he does. He surveys and evaluates the vision. He surveys the land. Because why? He's, he's going to devise a plan. He's going to consult the problem and where to begin to eat on this elephant, like one bite at a time, right? How do we go and attack this? Uh, chapter two, verse eleven. After I arrived in Jerusalem, I had been there three days. I got up at night and I took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone that my God had laid what my God had laid on my heart for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one that I was riding. I went out that night through the valley gate towards the shepherd, uh, towards the serpent's wall and the dung gate, and I expected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. I went on. ...to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. But farther down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up by night by the way of the valley and inspected the wall. And then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. For I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of those who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see... That we are in trouble. You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned. So come. Let's rebuild Jerusalem's wall. So that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me. And what the king had said to me. They said. Let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat. The Horonite. Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab, their enemies, heard about this. They mocked and despised us and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Verse 20. So I gave them this reply. The God of heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, will start building. But you have no share, no right, no historic claim to Jerusalem. Now. After three days, Nehemiah still hadn't told anyone his plan because he wanted to survey the task from top to bottom. And he wanted to consult for himself how to rebuild a process and plan of action for how to accomplish this task to complete the vision God had given him. He was administrative. How many of you know someone in your life has the gift of administration? They're good at evaluating problems and devising a plan of action. He rallies people to said vision. He shares the the problem and the plan to rebuild. He shares God's favor with them. And as an apostle, he shares the message of what is and what needs to be. And then encourages the people by sharing God's favor on them. He is influencing them. He is rallying them. He is propelling them. He is employing them. As an apostle, he is so motivated and envisioned, uh, he's so motivated and envisioned them towards what God desires for this, that when he shares it, the people respond with, let's start building, rebuilding in verse 18. They like immediately do it. The wall has been torn down for over 140 years and no one's done a thing about it. He steps up and says it and was like, let's do it. Remember how last week I said they push us out of the nest? They're the one that even though we may be frightened, we go, they go, let's start packing. We go, we all should pack. They're that friend that when you were a kid said, jump off this trestle and they influence you. You're like, I think I should jump. That person that when they share it, they have this, this, this special ability to communicate it because of the measure of faith God has placed within them, within them that pushes us past our fears. I don't know why the the walls hadn't been rebuilt to this point, but I guarantee what was probably crippling the people of Israel, they were focused on rebuilding the temple, but I guarantee they were probably afraid. The remnant could have just been scared and depressed, but due to Nehemiah's rallying, they were focused more on the positive than the negative. And he pushed them out of the nest, so to speak. Listen, How many of you have ever had that person that when you in your life get a a problem, it stands there before you? You have a tendency like I do to focus on the problem and we can get crippled by that and our fear. I don't even know how to begin. But then someone comes along and says, you are God's child. You have his favor. You can do this. Just start. And they go, you know what I'm saying? In the name of Jesus... And we begin to feel motivated to do it. We start thinking about what could be and not what is. Hello? We start to think about what could be and not what is keeping us crippled right before us. Not the problem. We're looking at the answer now. Nehemiah executes the vision in verses 19 and 20. When Samba the Hornite, the enemy... Tobiah the Ammonite, the official Geshem the Arab heard about this. They mock and despise us. Start speaking lies. Why are you doing this? Are you rebelling against the king? Listen to the voice of someone who has a resolved vision, who is a favor of God, who knows, who knows exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it. I gave this reply: The God of Heaven is the one who will grant us His people success. We're His servants. We'll start building, but you have no right, no claim, no share in this. You're lying. Shut your mouth. When what he does is this, he's managing. And he's managing accurately. He's keeping the people focused on what they need to do. What he'll do in chapters two and three is he's gonna assign specific men a specific part of the wall and he's gonna give them a specific job to do and that's their part. They're gonna focus on building that part of the wall and when they step back, they're gonna see everyone did their part of the wall and it's complete. They don't ask him to do the whole thing. They're doing their part. They're chewing on their side of the wall, biting their side of the elephant. And he's the one that keeps the focus there. And Asambal will repeatedly, all the way through chapter 6 of Nehemiah, he's going to breathe threats and lies against the people, specifically trying to challenge Nehemiah. Nehemiah goes, nope, that's a lie. I'm doing a good work and I can't come down. He gives them the power of saying no. Hey, you know what? Apostolic aside, this is a good practice for any believer who is trying to live as God has called you to, whether in your workplace, in your home, or in your church. The power of saying no. How many of you have started a work but had trouble finishing it? Because you got distracted by other good things. Hello? Hello? The power to say no gives you an ability to complete that which God has put before you. And I got to say, this is not to shame anyone. I am chief of this. Anyone who struggles with ADD in here a little bit, a little distraction disorder, okay? Prone to be like wander. Got me? When you will take what God has told you and simply say, thank you. I'm going to see this through to completion. What that means is you're going to have lots of great opportunities come up. Sam Ballot invites him to dinner repeatedly. To complete the vision, he has to say no. There's power in no because there's completion of what God called you to last when you can say no and see that through. Hello? I just want to encourage those who are here. You got to be able to discern. And that's what he's doing here. He's discerning what's of God and what is not. He's checking the spirits going, no, you intend evil. You're our enemy. You're just here to distract me from completing what God asked me to do last. And as an obedient, subservient individual following my God, I'm going to just say no to you. Thanks for the invitation. I'm going to do what he asked me to do. I think Jesus would be proud of a church that would just do what Jesus asked them to do and see it through to fruition. Anyone else agree with that? Nehemiah helps us. Apostles help keep us from getting distracted. They keep us on vision, help us complete the task. Like consultants or administrators, they are decisively task-driven and keep us all on task with our own individual assignments until the whole project or process comes to completion. Nehemiah's wall rebuild is a great picture of what happened in the New Testament apostles when they started churches, whether it was Paul, Barnabas, especially Peter. And it almost didn't even happen with Peter. I want to take a a moment to look at something, if it's okay. Breeze here, just so we can see what a... New Testament apostle looks like when they begin to struggle with their own fear and they begin to get crippled by their own lie. And John, how many of you remember what happened at the last supper? Let's just get on the same page. Last supper, Jesus looks at Peter and says, one of you will deny me. Peter steps up. I would never deny you. Hold on, Peter. Actually, you know what I'm talking about here? Listen, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. You're going to act like you never knew me emphatically. I would never. Look, Peter, I'd love to tell you what's about to happen. There's soldiers are going to come, and and they're going to And just to try to prove your, like, devotion to me, you're going to break out a sword and cut off some dude's ear. You're going to, here's the thing, Peter, you're going to be aiming for his head. That's you. Like, but I was, like, wouldn't that be a cooler miracle, though? Like, whew, Peter, man, like, you know. <laughs> Like, like just listen. I know you better than you know you. I need you to hear me in this. When, When Peter denies him three times, looks at Jesus, Jesus looking straight at him as if... And the rooster crows. Immediately, Peter goes back to fishing. Goes right back where he was found when the Lord called him. In shame and depression and disgust. In John 21, the Lord comes and finds Peter. He reveals himself to Peter. He shows up on the shore. You've heard this story before. I want to show you something really dynamic that the Lord does with Peter. Here it is. The fear that cripples, the lie that cripples the apostle. Is this even real? This Jesus thing, this ministry thing. Is this even real? I'm not worthy of this call. I was a fisher. He called me to be a fisher of men. I'm not worthy of that. In Peter's life, God even changed his name. Remember in Matthew 16 who do the people say that I am? Well, you're the Christ, the one that we've waited on. You're Messiah. He goes, that's right. I don't want to focus on calling you Simon anymore. Simon was the son of Jonah, the fisherman, son of John. That's what your daddy taught you to do. I want to focus on the fact that your name is Peter, Petra, the rock on which I'll build my church. That's You're going to be foundational to this whole thing, Peter. Peter believes that all went away the moment he denied Jesus. John 21, verse 3. I'm going fishing Simon Peter said, we're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, the resurrected Jesus, after the crucifixion resurrection, stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. He yells, friends, Jesus called to them. You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered, cast the net on the other side of the boat. He told them, and you'll find some. So they did as they cast it over the right. They were unable to haul it in because it was such a large number of fish. The disciple whom G- Jesus loved, or John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him for it was taken off and he plunged into the sea since they were not far off from land, about a hundred yards away. And other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. When they got out on the land, they saw the charcoal fire there with the fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up, hauled in the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them, Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. Come, have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast... Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Stop. I'm afraid we already missed it. What did he call Simon Peter right there? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? How many of you have ever been so ashamed, so depressed, that the only thing that you can hear is someone speaking straight to that depression and that shame? How many of you have ever been so hurt that the only name you'll hear is the one you already believe about yourself, that you're unworthy, unvaluable? I believe that Peter could not even lift his eyes to look at the Lord in this moment because he is so shamed about what happened the last time he saw Jesus. And as he sits there, silent, eating the food that Jesus prepared for them, with his head hung low, Jesus looks at him and goes, Simon, fisherman, do you love me more than these fish or not? I called you Peter. I said we wouldn't say this name anymore. I said that you'd be a fisher of men, but you've come right back here and you won't even look at me. Let me ask you a question. How well were you fishing before I said throw it over the right side? You can't even fish without me. Hello? You may be an expert, but you're not very good. You can't even do that without me. So Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And for every time he denied Jesus, how many times does he ask? Once to re-enlist him, to reinstate him, to cover that where he had embarrassed Jesus in the cause, he covers him. How many of you How many of you have done embarrassing things in front of Jesus? How many of you think that maybe you've embarrassed the name of Jesus of the church at least once in your life? Just once though. Just once. For anyone who feels that you, because of that embarrassing, because you missed it, because you messed up, because you were human and fallible, That you are now cast off and unwilling to be, God is unwilling to use you. You are set apart and set out and not ever allowed to be the thing that God called you to be, that called you away from the old life to live the new. If you believe that you're unworthy of the new life, let me tell you, that's the lie that's crippling you. Jesus reinstates Peter, reenlists him here. And what does he go on to do? He goes on to preach. He goes on to feed the lambs. And he goes on to preach what is arguably the greatest sermon ever preached as he birthed the New Testament church. It's argued because of the results he had. 3,000 men were baptized that day. Not including women and children. Can someone who denied emphatically knowing Jesus do that? Not unless... They're willing to accept the mercy and the grace of God for enlisting them despite their human failures, the ones listen that God already knew and knows about. We allow ourselves to be crippled by the lies the enemy tries to tell us. The accuser, we won't walk, as we're called. The lie that cripples the apostle. You're unvaluable. You're not worthy of this. Is any of this even real? The Jesus, the ministry thing, he can't use you. You know where else I saw Jesus do this? Where he walks like an apostle. I said last week that he is all five of these things. He is. He does, he walks like an apostle. He goes into... The place in Peter's life where Peter's most afraid, most concerned, most feels like he's offended God. And he says, I'll call you the thing you're only willing to hear right now so I can reinstate you and call you the name you're supposed to have. I'll do what maybe no one else will. I'll face that giant with you and I'll tear it down. We just sung about that, kicking down every wall. Look, and anyone remember the story of John 4, the Samaritan woman? Jesus again walks like an apostle here. At the beginning of that passage, he's walking with the disciples. They're walking towards Samaria. You need to understand that Jews have no dealings with Samaria. The Samaritan woman tells them that. But before he even engages the Samaritan woman, guess what he does with his disciples? Jewish men who have never really talked to a Samaritan wouldn't do that. Hey, guys, we're hungry. Go into the city, get some food. Wait, What? What city? Sycar, right there in Samaria. There's a marketplace. We need to go take some take your Jewish money and bless a Samaritan business. We're Jews. We don't have dealings with Samaritans. We don't talk to them. They're like worse than Gentiles. They're half breeds. They're like lower than dogs. We don't. What are you talking about? We don't go talk to them. Hey, listen. I'm your master. You're the you're the student. Go into Sycar. Do what I told you to do. Get some food, bless the Samaritan businesses that you culturally turn your back on. I need you to engage them and bless them and then bring the food back to me. Then Samaritan woman comes out by herself, shamed, not with the rest of the women, shamed because of all she's done, ostracized from her community. Give me a drink. Uh, Sir, I can see you're Jewish, that's clear. Uh, You have no dealings with Samaritans. Why are you talking to me? If you knew the one that talked to you. You hear me? I'm more concerned. The beginning of that passage of John 4, it said he must need go to Samaria. He was compelled to go to Samaria. Normally they would journey a, a week Long, like add a week to their journey to go up the mountain range and around Samaria to avoid it if they're going south to north Jesus said I cannot stop myself I'm compelled I have to go through Samaria why? for this woman so that my disciples can see that my, my covenant will involve Jew Gentile Samaritan alike it will not have a cultural bias it will be for everyone so as we conclude, I want to say this. I'm going to ask the band to come back. As we go through this series, we're in discovery and discussion, whether here or in life group. What we know is that apostles are incredibly important to the kingdom's advance and for the unity of the church. And we know that we've been saved. Those who have been saved are called the children of God. This is the most important title that we can wear as we discover what God is doing through this callings series. But I want you to hear it for what it is. It is an invitation to know what you've been intently designed for. Do you think God made a mistake with you? Do you think God dreamt you and did that on purpose? This is the invitation we're inviting ourselves to. So if you simply come today and you say, I'm open to the conversation, I'm open to the discussion, that's all we're asking. You may not even get the answer by the end of the discussion We're just continuing to talk. But what I want us to respond to today is this. How many of you are grateful that like Peter, Jesus didn't leave you to wallow in your shame? He fought for you and came after you. That should drive you in gratitude to come to the altar today and say, thank you for saving me. Thank you for fighting for me. Putting on the cross the prayer request for those who yet in your life have come to that saving knowledge. It should drive you to the Lord's table to say, God, thank you for doing what you did, taking your own life in your own hands, dying so that I could live. Thank you for saving me. But here's the thing, if you really want to do this the way that God intended, you shouldn't be doing that alone. You should be gathering those that are in your household, come to this altar, praying. You should be gathering those in your life group and walking with them going, thank you God that you've called us into biblical community. You desired that we would not only Know our own calling, but we'd know the calling of those around us. We walk as brothers and sisters, advancing your kingdom, bringing the world forward in the knowledge of you, that they might have hope. So this morning, we we'll ended with a couple quotes. And I want you to think about how you are to respond, maybe with your brother or sister. Here it is. Mike Breen said it like this. We are not called to be pastors, but we are called to care. Maybe we're not called to be teachers, but we're called to hold the truth. We are all responsible for learning how to listen God's voice, something that comes more naturally for a prophet. We are all called to share the good news with others. But this takes all those involved who are not called to be evangelists out of their comfort zones. And we are all not apostles. But we must all learn to walk out into the call of what God has called us to do. Jean-Jacques Sermon, I've used this quote before, I'll say it again. It's not so much a matter of having a gift. It's a matter of being one. We're talking about how God has uniquely wired each of us. I'm asking us to answer the call.